Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Amen, church. I pray you are well, and that as you celebrated Independence Day, July 4th, that you did so with the main reason that we can celebrate that holiday, and that is the freedom that we have in Christ. The freedoms we have in this country are unique in all of the world, and as difficult as this time has been, as divided as the country is right now on many different levels, as hard as we're struggling uh, to bring justice to those situations which are difficult for us as a country, the state of racial tension and the things that uh, perhaps can divide us, there's still much to be thankful for. If you travel around the world and you ask people what nation would they want to live in if they were not uh, in their own country, almost universally, you're going to find the answer is the United States of America, and there's a reason for that. That's the freedoms that we do have, the freedoms to be wrong, the freedoms to disagree, the freedoms to act foolish, the freedoms to protest, the freedoms to uh, act out, uh, even in, in times Uh, where we would say that's probably not even appropriate, but we do have that freedom in this country. And I think we can get caught up so much in what's wrong that we miss what's right. And I would pray that you'd take a moment to reflect on the freedom that you have, the freedom purchased by the patriots that have gone before us, those that are all over the world, even today, uh, securing those freedoms, keeping us safe, And don't let the detractors get you to the place to where you don't truly appreciate what the Lord has done for us in this country. Pray for the changes that need to happen. Pray for those inequities to be balanced. Pray for racial justice, where those people are still struggling. Or I I myself just, I've been so taken aback by how divided the country is right now. And I know there are things that need to be fixed, and I pray that the Lord would just intervene and cause us to turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, because he truly is the only answer to these things that are dividing us. And so would you join me? Let's pray, and we'll ask the Lord to speak to us. We've come to study his word. Uh, We've come to be the church, and though we are still uh, not inside these four walls, we are still the church. And we are still his children. And so let's worship him as, as the Lord's kids. And we'll be in Luke chapter 9. We'll pick up in verse 37. Uh, but let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray uh, that you would bless us as we study your word, Lord. We can still do that in this great nation. And we can still come to your throne of grace and seek mercy. And we ask for that. Lord, we pray that you would stamp out the racial inequities and divides that are in this country, those things which have harmed so many and continue to plague our nation, especially in the cities, the inner city areas, Lord, where there is just great need. We pray that you'd improve our school systems. Lord, we pray that you'd provide jobs for those that have need. We pray that you'd watch over those that are in our state right now in this local area that are suffering greatly because their businesses are unable to open, uh, especially those in the restaurant industry that were open and then closed again. And God, we ask you to stamp out this virus. Lord, bring us a cure. Uh, Bring us therapies that will help with the symptoms of it, God, that we could be released uh, from our homes and from this bondage that we're in. We feel like the children of Israel, uh, Lord, in Egypt, and we ask that you'd set us free. And so we pray that whatever lesson we're supposed to learn, we'd learn it. And we pray that your word would speak to us now, encourage us as we walk from the mountaintop with the disciples into the valley of grace. Lord, would you speak to us as your children? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
verse 37 here in Luke chapter 9. And the disciples have been together in Caesarea Philippi. They're about to make the return journey back down to Capernaum. And Jesus adopted hometown with Peter, Peter's mother-in-law. And so they're, they're coming down the mountain. They've had this experience. Jesus has been transfigured before them. You have Peter and James and John on the mountain. And there's a vision that includes Moses and Elijah. And we found last time that they actually heard the voice of God. The audible voice of God speaks to them from heaven. They had what we would call a retreat. They went to camp. Uh, They had a mountaintop experience. They had a once in a lifetime, really for many people, experience to where they'd been on the mountaintop with the Lord. The problem with all mountaintop experiences are that you still have to go back down to the valley. We don't live on the mountaintops. Those are once in a lifetime often experiences, or maybe they're once a year experiences. Perhaps you're looking forward to that women's retreat or that men's retreat or that getaway to go hear that special speaker. You're, you're looking forward to that time to where you're saying to yourself, man, I just can't wait to get away. I'm going to go on vacation, maybe would be a way to look at it, to where you finally get out of that difficulty that you face every day with your job, and you're, you're just in that wonderful place to where God is speaking to you with an audible voice. It's like, Lord, I can hear you. The noises stopped. That was the case for the disciples. Peter, James, John, and Jesus have now come down from the mountain, and they're about to join with the rest of the guys. Verse 37, and now it happened on the next day that they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. And you can see the immediate problem. After every mountaintop experience, there is a valley, and that valley will always be to us a valley where we need grace, the valley of grace, the place where that unmerited favor of God needs to shine upon us or there's no getting through it. And suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, For he is my only child. And so we go back to this all familiar situation to where there's somebody and that somebody has a problem and that problem has not been handled by the world. That difficulty has not been taken care of, in essence, by the world and its system. There's something that can't be done that only Jesus can do. And behold, the Spirit seizes him and He suddenly cries out and convulses him that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him, but with great difficulty bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And you can kind of see where this is going. You know, sometimes we think we've moved so far along the road of ministry and in our ministry experience or maybe our walks with the Lord that we ourselves have become so much like Jesus that maybe we don't need Jesus anymore. Maybe we don't need to go to church. Maybe we don't need to study our Bibles. Maybe we don't need to have a devotional life. Perhaps we no longer need to listen to counsel. And it appears as though the disciples in that sense had gotten to that place, and we're going to find out why in just a moment as we read through the remainder of this passage But the disciples had not been able to do what Jesus can do. And that's always going to be the case. We are not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. And there are things that Jesus can do that I will never be able to do. It doesn't mean I couldn't do those things if God empowers me to do them. But there's always a place that we need Jesus, and it's especially in the valley of grace, and especially when we've come down from the mountain. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And so you have two groups of people. You have the disciples who've just kind of been put on blast. And you have the multitudes who 
always have problems. There's always things going on. One of the things that has struck me in these last several weeks is we've had all these events go on to where we look at it and it's like, Lord, how long are you going to tarry? How long are we going to see innocent people murdered? How long are we going to see lawlessness? How long are we going to see rioting? How long are we going to see injustice? How long, how long, how long, how long? And the answer is forever until the Lord comes again. Forever. The world is not getting better in that sense. Oh, faithless and perverse generation. How long? Shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. And then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. That is almost a job description for the church is to be so filled with the Spirit, so in tune with what God wants and what God is doing, that people would see what we do, and as it is true of Jesus here, because we are his representatives on this earth, that the world would be amazed at the majesty of God. That's actually our calling while we're still here, is to cause people to be amazed at the majesty of God, that everything we do, would bring glory to the Lord. And while everyone marveled at the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, now, I want you to notice this. Just because you've walked with the Lord for a long time, and there's never been a group of people that were closer to Jesus than the disciples, the 12, nobody's ever personally seen more things done by the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, than the disciples Notice what he has to say to them. And this is a warning to me as a pastor. It's helpful to me as a believer. Let these words sink down into your ears. In other words, do a whole lot better job of listening and don't let these things pass you by simply because you're in ministry. And in their case, they were the disciples. They're about to be the apostles. They're going to be the ones sent on a commissioned mission where they're going to go out fulfilling the gospel. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now, I'm pretty sure the disciples weren't wanting to hear that part. It's not that they were sitting around going, man, this guy that we've been following now is going to die. But they did not understand this saying. And we're going to see exactly how much they did not understand by what follows. It was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Spiritual pride is a dangerous thing. When you've gone to the mountaintop and you think you've heard a word from the Lord and you come back down into the valley of grace, spiritual pride is a dangerous thing. You can often get to the place where you think you've already arrived. You've already become all that God wants you to be. You already know everything God wants you to know. And the truth of the matter is, while we're still on this earth in these bodies with fleshly minds, we will never be all the way to where God wants us to be. I can say that personally about my own life. I am still learning lessons that God wants me to learn. I'm still understanding the scriptures even fresh things from the same scriptures that I've taught dozens of times. You see, spiritual pride is a dangerous thing. And these guys were beginning to be filled with spiritual pride. And the truth is, mountains and valleys exist in all of our lives. We can have the highest highs and we can still have the lowest lows. Even as a pastor, I can tell you there have been times when it's just been like, Lord, how can you do anything better than this? This is awesome. And then I wake up to a new reality the following morning. Some disaster has happened in someone's life, in the church. Maybe something that's happened in our own lives. You know, pastors aren't immune to 
to sickness and injury. We're not immune to cancer. We're not immune to financial difficulties within our own families. We're not immune to parents that are in need of care. We're we're not immune to the valley of grace. And neither are you. That's why Jesus said, and the disciples in the hearing of this, remember where they've been. They heard the audible voice of God. This is my beloved son, hear him. And they come back down in a great multitude of people. Problems are waiting in the valley of grace. Predicaments are waiting in the valley of grace. People are waiting in the valley of grace. And their retreat on the mountaintop is not going to sustain them when they need Christ in the valley of grace. Only the Lord's presence himself is going to be sufficient there. You're not going to be able to live on yesterday's manna. No matter how great the mountaintop was, you're still going to need Jesus in the valley. You're going to need his truth. The fact of the matter is the church is filled with hurting people. Desperate people, diseased people, sick people. And no matter how long you spend on vacation, we all look forward to those things. I look forward to those things. Matter of fact, I would go so far as I see in the life of the disciples with Jesus, even a necessity to get away for a period of time. I think it's essential that people do that. We're human. We need a break occasionally. But the truth of the matter is, no matter what you experience on the mountaintop, when you come back, those problems are still going to be there. The desk is still going to be piled high. Sometimes I joke with people because they'll, they'll ask, you know, it's, well, you, you know, you went away. What, well, what happens when Connie and I get away is that I spend about two weeks doing extra studying and getting things together so that when I leave, I'm ready for when I come back. So actually there's the same amount of work. It just gets done in a shorter period of time. And then there's a vacation. You come back and then all those emails and all those texts and all the church issues and problems and the business things and the administration and the people. And I'm not saying this so that you feel sorry. Please don't. I, I praise the Lord. I love what I do. I'm grateful to be able to do those things. But make no mistake, when you come back, you you don't bring that mountaintop experience with you. You come right back to the exact same needs that you had when you left. You just had a little time of refreshment. It will not sustain you. If you don't have grace in the moment, all the mountaintop experiences will not sustain you. Too many people look so forward to the mountaintop that they forget there's grace in the valley. They forget that there's peace in the valley of the shadow of death. I think this is a lesson we have to learn. You see, the valley people are always waiting. There's always a demon-possessed boy. There's always a desperate man. There's always a powerless church. There's always a mocking world. There's always problems. One of the great controversies of our day is that the, the world is getting better. No, the world is winding down to a conclusion, and it spins ever further into that moral morass that ultimately is going to cause the Lord to return. We've just sanitized it. There's always desperate people. There are more desperate people today than were in Jesus' time. There are always demons attacking. Pastors, their families are not immune to these things. You're not immune to these things. We all experience this type of attack. And notice the word suddenly here in this passage. The enemy doesn't send you a little list of when he's going to attack you, in case you hadn't noticed that. 
He doesn't, you know, you don't get a little memo. Hey, at 2.35 on Saturday, the 4th of July, you're going to get attacked. He does it suddenly without warning because that surprise is part of his tactics. He wants to hit you when you're ill-prepared. Maybe he wants to wait until you're coming back down the mountaintop so he can steal the joy of the mountaintop. It seized this young man. It's interesting because the word seized there, when you look at it in the Septuagint rendering uh, of, of the Old Testament, it's also used to describe an earthquake. There was an earthquake in this young man's life. It was so bad that it bruised and shattered his life to pieces. He was terrified by it. The same thing that happens were we to have an earthquake right now. The building would shake. His life was shaken. The parents' life was shaken, and they needed Jesus in the Valley of Grace. They didn't need the disciples. Church, we are to preach Christ and him crucified alone for the remission of sin. We're to teach God's word. That's why we're gathering right now virtually. It's to continue to do what we will always do. And when we get back together, we're going to be doing the same thing we're doing right now, which is to show people Jesus. He's found right here in the Word. You see, we don't need to show them ministry. We don't need to show them that our church does things this way. We need to show them that Jesus does things this way. That He's the answer. He was the only one that could take care of this problem. And whether you see it or realize it, you are never the answer. Christ is the answer. This is a tough lesson for those of us who occupy the pulpit. Because sometimes we think we're the answer. I can tell you as as a matter of confession in my own life, and Connie would validate this, I carry things around as if I am going to be the solution to that person's problem. And it's painful when you come to the end of yourself and you go, you know what, I can't help them. I can't fix that problem. I can't make them do what God wants them to do. It is the old axiom, you can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make them drink. That is true spiritually. But I'm still supposed to lead them to the living water, not to me. And so Jesus says, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? He's saying, look, how many times do I have to tell you this? How many times do I have to speak these words to you? And, And as he does so, I have to believe that as the, the enemy was working in the valley of grace, so the Spirit of God was working in the valley of grace. It's just that the disciples had kind of missed it, and I believe that it broke the Lord's heart. I believe he's looking at the disciples. Man, we've been together how long? Maybe for you today, you've gone to church for how long? You've been attending Calvary Chapel South Bay for how long? You've heard how many Bible studies? And you're still contemplating divorcing your wife? You're still thinking about engaging in that behavior that you know is not okay with God? You're still running to the world for solutions in in areas that only God can solve that problem? It's amazing to me how many people who sat in church for a very long time who were disciples just like these guys, And yet they don't turn to the Lord. They turn to their unsaved friends. They turn to their job. They turn to their resources and riches. They turn to all kinds of things. They turn to mountaintop experiences. But they don't actually turn to the Lord. He says, how long am I going to have to suffer with you? This breaks my heart, he says. Now, Jesus, by this time, has been making known what's coming. Well, make no mistake, he knew exactly where he was going and why he was going there. So he makes this exclamation, 
And he's basically saying, look, I want you to see the triumph of my grace. Bring the boy to me. My grace, Paul said, is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect, Jeff, in your weakness. You see, very often it is exactly my weakness that causes me to ponder the triumph of God's grace. Because I am insufficient. I don't know. I am filled with tears. I don't have any idea how, God, you're going to do that. You know, people keep asking, well, when are we going to be back at church? I don't know. I don't know. I know where we are right now. I know what it looks like it's going to be for the remainder of this week, probably this month, maybe into August. I think it's going to be a little while longer. I don't know. I would love to tell you I got a private revelation from the Lord, but if I were to utter those words, I would be not truthful because I haven't received a private revelation from the Lord that this is going to end on such and such a date. I have to go back to the grace of God. God is allowing this. And I think it's important for us to understand God works together for the good, all things, to those who love God. I love God. You love God. So even in all this craziness of this pandemic, the racial injustice and the things that we're fighting against and the things that we're fighting for, truth, justice, equity, God alone has the answers to these problems. But we need to seek him. The world doesn't have answers. Politics doesn't have answers to this. We're turning the wrong direction. I watch Christians debate endlessly things that are not the answer. You're not going to find the answers on YouTube. It's not going to happen. Because that's not where the problem lies either. Problems in human hearts. And Jesus recognized this. He says, bring the boy to me. We need to bring people to Jesus. The second thing that you can see here in this is that the power of God's grace to destroy any demon, any disease, and any dire straits that one is going through is found in God's grace. It's the power of his grace. Jesus didn't need anything else. He just needed himself. He didn't need the disciples. And as they're coming back to Caesarea Philippi, as they begin to make the journey south towards Jerusalem, people are marveling at this miracle, but what they should have been marveling at was the grace of God. The God incarnate in human flesh would see the difficulty of this young man and this father and in spite of where he's heading which is to death on Calvary's cross he stops and says my grace is sufficient for you I want you to see the discernment of the Savior next verse 46 and If ever there's a passage, and and you can mark the same one, it's also in Mark chapter 9, it begins there. The same scene. This describes perfectly how lame we can be as Christians. How completely clueless we can be. Even those of us in ministry full-time can suffer from this malady. And then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. I encourage you to read Mark chapters 9 and 10 for the story from Mark's perspective. It is elaborated on in a greater way there. For sake of time, I'll just simply let you read it. You can come to your own conclusions as the word of God speaks to you. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, In other words, knowing the wickedness of Peter and James and John, these stellar disciples to whom we owe so much 
because they authored part of what we hold in our hands, our Bibles. Those guys, he knew the thought of their heart. He took a little child and set him by him. We find out from Mark that he actually set him in the midst of the disciples. Like the disciples are gathered in a circle. Jesus is in the middle and he takes a little boy and sets him next to him in the midst of the disciples. And said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. What a lesson. You you see, God is not looking for us to determine who's great. He's looking for us who will serve. He's looking for those of us who will say, you know what, there is nothing great about me. But the one I preach is great. The one who loves me with an undying love, he's great. The one whom I serve is great. Now John answered and said, Master, I don't know how you can read this passage and just not want to slap John, Peter, and James in a good way. It's like, this is an are you kidding me moment. Notice what's happened. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus says, become as a little child. And John answered and said, after having said those things to the Lord, having the Lord answer them, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and they did it all wrong. They don't do it the way we do it. Now, remember what was just said. The disciples attempted to cast out the demon, and the demon wouldn't leave because the demon's going, you guys are nothing. Whatever you're doing, it's not working. So there's an admission that what they were doing didn't even work. They see somebody else doing the same thing differently, and somehow, because it's different than them, even though what they did didn't work, somehow those guys are wrong. This is a picture-perfect example of sectarian thinking that invades the church on a daily basis. Well, you know, they have got colored lights. Occasionally we have fog. and Well, we don't have fog and we don't have colored lights because we're pure. We only sing hymns and they're all in the key of F, which nobody can sing in. Well, you know, when we do our baptisms, I mean, after all, I mean, who would use a pool? You have to always use a fresh body of water. Oh, we do it at the holy place, Corona Del Mar, where Chuck did all of his baptisms. Or when we do communion, we actually tear the pieces of bread. And you guys use matzo crackers. Or we worship for an hour. You only worship for 15 minutes. Your service is an hour and 50 minutes, and our service is only an hour and five. So we're more holy. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We forbade him because he does not follow with us. In other words, he doesn't do it like we do. And oh, by the way, we're actually failures at it. But Jesus said to him, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. In other words, those guys are trying to serve me. And you guys are worried about how they're doing it. God help the church to learn this exact lesson. I don't care what other people are doing. That's why it bugs me to no end when I read these blogs that all they do is bash, 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 bash everyone and everything. And they don't have a clue about what it's like to walk in that person's shoes or they don't even bother to ask why it is they're doing those things the way they're doing them. The sectarian spirit that says, if you don't do it the way we do it, well, you can't be of God. 
You know, praise God for the differences in the body of Christ. I, I'm not going to be wearing a collar anytime soon, but praise God for those who do that minister to people who think that's important. We happen to have a very diverse worship here. But praise God for those who actually just sing hymns. And oh, by the way, they do it a cappella. We need to lose the sectarianism. And now it came to pass that when he had, his, the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He chides them and says, guys, I need to get on with the mission. The ebb, the flow, the tide had set in. The journey now begins towards Jerusalem. And as the Lord leads the way south, you have three of the disciples who are kind of like the special guys. Peter, James, and John. They got to go on the mountain, and we think they may have been partially asleep, or at least in a daze when Moses and Elijah, but they still got to hear the voice of God himself. Church. I, I've never had that experience. I would love to have that experience. And so what does Jesus do when they're kind of bragging about, well, you know, we got to hear the voice of God. We got a special word for the Lord. We're going to defy the law. We're going to have church because we're different. We're better. Well, we're not because we believe in this. How does Jesus answer this? He said, guys, guys, guys. Mark will tell us, he says, why don't you become a servant of everyone? Why don't you become as a child? Put those things away. You know, children are so fun. One of the reasons that I spent 20 years as a camp director is it's hard to not get excited about seeing things through the, seeing things through the lens of the eyes of children. Everything is new. Everything's wonderful. Nothing's the same. I've watched countless hundreds and thousands of kids wander around looking for lizards because they grew up in the city. They'd never seen a lizard in their entire life in the wild. There's something wonderful about that type of mindset that says everything has the potential to be something glorious. And Jesus is basically basically saying to them, guys, put away your pride. Put off the things you think you know. Stop being so arrogant. And why don't you become as this little child right here? Why don't you grow a sense of wonder again? Why don't you put away your carnality and thinking that you already know how to do it? Because actually you don't because you failed at it. That's why this demon-possessed boy is still here. Why don't you put away the same spirit that moved Cain to murder Abel? Why don't you... Get to that place to where when Joshua denies El dad and me dad the right to prophesy, why don't you move from that place because you think you already know it all to being like a child and get ready for whatever I want to do in your life. You see, a, a, a life that's lived under the discernment of the word of God where the Savior is speaking into your life is not going to divide. It's going to unify. And we're all going to get childlike wonder. We're going to look at the things that are going on and go, Lord, I don't deserve a bit of this. And if you're not doing it, ain't nothing happening. It is in that context that the Lord now shifts from the Valley of Grace and heads towards Golgotha. Jesus puts an immediate stop to the pride, to the arrogance, to the sectarianism. Puts an immediate stop to our church is better than your church. That my understanding of doctrine is the only one that matters. He says, look, this valley of grace leads to death to self. This valley of grace is going to actually lead me to physically die in your place. To go to 
this place of the skull. That's what Golgotha means. I love Job's remarks. As he talks to his friends about his predicament, He says, you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. Total sarcasm there in Job chapter 12. It's like, yeah, you guys got it all right, and when you die, wisdom won't exist on the earth anymore. God help us. God help us. God help us. To not live in that place. Jesus wasn't saying to the disciples, yeah, Peter, James, and John, you guys are really special. We're going to find they're actually arguing about who will sit on the right and who will sit on the left of Jesus when his kingdom comes. Is that nuts or what? Automatically, Jesus is going, well, it's not going to be either of you. God help us. As I've gotten older, I've realized how much I don't know. How many answers I don't have. How much my heart is pierced by things that I've been through hundreds of times. We need to get to the place to where Jesus is king and Jesus is Lord and Jesus is is the answer, and Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is everything. Because Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. Luke, up to this point, has been dwelling on all of this work that's gone on in Galilee. We followed Jesus and the disciples all the way from the baptism and temptation all the way to the transfiguration on the mountain. And now Jesus is about to take those first steps towards Jerusalem. He's going to leave the region of the northern part of the Sea of Galilee and he's going to head south. He's got 65 miles to walk on some dusty roads to meet a few more people. And he is going to come in contact with the full forces of hell. That's what lies ahead. That's why it says, and he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. That comes, by the way, from Isaiah chapter 50, written 700 years before these events that we find recorded in Luke's gospel. In verse 6 and 7, it says, and I gave my back to those who struck me. Messianic. I gave my back. Jesus wasn't actually arrested. He gave himself up. The Romans thought they arrested Jesus. Judas thought Jesus got arrested. Peter thought Jesus got arrested. But Jesus, according to Jesus, gave his back to those who struck him. And my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. When Pilate had his troops put that sack over Jesus' face and then punch him. And then they asked that question, who punched you if you're the son of God? Jesus knew exactly who hit him. Jesus had actually created that hand that punched him in the face and that hand that plucked his beard and that hand that held the lash that struck his back. There was no mistake. There was no accident. That's why Isaiah said, and I didn't hide my face from the shame and the spitting. Jesus knew who spit on him. Jesus knew the name of the person that hewn the cross, who dug the hole that it dropped into, who made the lash that was in the lictor's hand. He knew which bone came from what animal that was tied to that lash. Isaiah knew because God had told him what would happen to his son 
the Lord God will help me, and therefore I will not be disgraced. And therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. When Jesus headed towards Jerusalem, he was so sharpened as in focus that nothing could keep him from going to Jerusalem to die, to give his life a ransom for many. On this phrase, my face set like flint, it's so interesting because we've learned in recent history that flint, specifically flint and obsidian, can be so finely sharpened, it can be down to several microns. It's actually sharper than the sharpest steel. It's used in surgery. Jesus said, my face is so sharpened towards the objective, towards the goal, which is Golgotha, that nothing can stop me. And in that sense, Jesus was about to cross the Rubicon. In 49 BC, Emperor Julius Caesar manipulated his way to, to the position of the proconsul of Rome. And after a year of service, he was actually made the provincial governor of Gaul, which was in the north and southern Europe. And so he goes and he fights the Celts that have come from uh, England and Scotland and also the Germanic tribes that occupied uh, most of what we would today call Europe. But as he was doing so, he began to have such a great following in the army, he was pronounced an enemy of the state. So the Senate actually acts on this and, and declares that Caesar has to stay in Gaul. And it was a Roman law that there in the north of Italy, there's a small, it's really a stream, it's not even a river called the Rubicon. And that no general in the Roman army, if he was sent into what we would call Europe, could come back into Italy with a standing army. If you crossed the Rubicon, you forfeit your life. And Jesus is saying, I don't care. I'm going to cross that river and I'm going to come against the armies of hell. I'm going to defeat Satan in his own territory. He crossed his Rubicon. Just as that tiny stream would reveal Caesar's intention, and he would cross, and he did bring a standing army, and he moved southward to confront then Emperor Pompey and plunge the Roman Republic into civil war. In a much greater way, Jesus crossed and said, I've come that you might have life, and that life abundant. Where else could a king of the world be crowned but Jerusalem. It was the only place where God was actually worshipped. It was the only place that God actually dwelled between the two cherubim. He would come and meet with people there. And yet that was in Romans, Roman hands. Jesus had largely stayed away from all the persecution that would come to him. While he was in Galilee, he was fairly safe. When he was in Samaria or the Decapolis, these ten cities... People were fairly forgetful, fairly friendly. But the moment he showed up in Jerusalem, the moment he uttered the words, and he does so seven times, the words that were given to Moses when Moses inquired, whom shall I say sent me? God himself said, Moses, you tell them that I am that I am has sent you. The moment Jesus says that in Jerusalem, the Jewish religious hierarchy knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus said, I am, I am. The I am of Moses is me. John's gospel recording those seven statements. The door of the sheep the resurrection, the life, the way, the truth, the life, living water. I am is those things. Jesus crossed his Rubicon. He says, there's one thing left to do. 
He's now heading to do that very thing. He's going to leave the Valley of Grace for a time, and he's going to go to Redemption's Hill. And I pray that you see this in the fullness of its power. Church, this is the Christ we worship. This is the Savior that has paid the price for our sin. And if you don't know him, then you don't know anything. If you don't have him as Savior and Lord, then you don't have anything. But if you have him, the king of heaven and earth, the one who has the right to rule, is also your friend. And I pray you know him. We have pastors online who would love to pray with you. Maybe you've got something in your life right now that you don't have an answer to. Jesus has an answer. And so turn to him. Receive his grace. Find his forgiveness. But don't think that those mountaintop experiences will sustain you because they won't. The only place to live is the valley of grace. Because Christ paid the price on redemption hill. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that for all their boisterousness and blunders, were all the things that they did that we could look back and go, man, how could they have been so lame? In those things is all of us. Lord, I would have made the same mistakes. I would have repeated the same silly things that Peter said. I would have undertaken the action of the sons of thunder. James and John may have looked tough on the outside, but on the inside, they needed your amazing grace. And so do I. And so we pray that you'd captivate our hearts today. That you'd remind us that sectarianism is always dangerous. That you'd bind us together with your spirit. It should heal us, Lord, individually, and it should heal our land. Lord, your word still declares that if my people who are called by my name will repent, will turn from their sin, call upon your name that you'll hear from heaven and heal us. And Lord, we need more than ever to be healed. Our country's broken. Our world is broken. We are broken and we need you. And so we cry out to you, Lord. Would you meet us in the valley of grace? We ask these things in the blessed name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.